Frank Talk is a podcast extension of the leadership dialogue that takes place each year between Australia, the UK, Israel and sometimes the United States. Frank Talk focuses mostly on foreign affairs policies. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to receive regular updates and leave a five-star review as this would help others find the podcast. Welcome to Frank Talk. This is Albert Adon, your host today. Um, I'm afraid that we don't have any images. Uh, what a disappointment. We did this uh, uh, Frank talk over Zoom uh, with Frank Levine, who's uh, located in Los Angeles at present, and my co-host, Michael Denby. But uh, the images were of poor quality and of no value. So uh, that's the way it is. We've got a good recording of the conversation and that's the main thing. So today's conversation is about China. Uh, we are going to host uh, several experts on the subject and it's a subject on co of concern for us who live uh, not too far from China because until recently we have very cordial, um, I would say even warm relationship with China and it seems that from one day to the next, everything has been turned onto its head. And it seemed that it's going to be like this for quite a while. Um, we were until recently selling China our raw material and they were selling us back their finished product. Um, but that's the way Australia sees itself as a country of raw material uh, mostly, I mean, a third or, of our economy is is uh, raw material. Um, we have uh, obviously a concern about the disembargo that China has imposed in most products from a China uh, on on Australia, and now Australia, of course, has retaliated as we do not allow the Chinese to purchase any more companies uh, in Australia, and um, therefore we are. At, in, a, in a standstill and uh, the f immediate future with China is a little bit uncertain, uh, hence us wanting to know a little bit more and hopefully you will also um, benefit from whatever we find. So we are going to be asking objective um, uh, questions to Frank uh, trying to leave the emotions out of the equation as much as possible. And um, let's, uh, let's hear this conversation that we had. And uh, again, my co-host is Michael Denby. I want to thank both Frank, Levine, and Michael Denby for their participation. Here we go. Welcome to Frank Talk. Um, I would like to welcome our guest today, uh, Ambassador Frank Levine. This is your talk, my friend. Thank you, Albert. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you again. Yes, we, we named the podcast after you, Frank. Well, as as is fitting, as is fitting. It shows great wisdom on your part. <laughs> so, so welcome and welcome to you, Michael Denby. Michael is my co-host today. Thank you, Albert. Michael is also uh, is the former chairman of the Foreign Affairs and Defence Committee in the Parliament of Australia. Frank, um, let's start with your background. Would you like to describe yourself in a few words? Sure. I've spent about half of my career in uh, government and about half in the private sector. In government, I was in the Reagan administration and both Bush administrations, White House job, National Security Council, job, State Department, Commerce Department. And I also served in the last Bush administration as U.S. ambassador to Singapore. So a fair amount of Asia work, a fair amount of China work, and a fair amount of White House uh, Washington staff work as well. When you uh, started your career, uh, how did you get involved in the Reagan administration? My, my guess is that you started around the Reagan administration. That was the start of your career, right? That, that is correct. That is correct. I was a, a college student uh, when he ran for president his for a successful run, 1980. And uh, I just thought he was the guy. I thought uh, he was serious about security issues and America's role in the world. And I thought he was serious about economic rejuvenation, and uh, Jimmy Carter was the incumbent at that time, 
running for re-election. I thought Carter was just not up to the job. So uh, it was easy for me to be a, a Reagan enthusiast, to be a Reagan booster. And I went right into the Reagan White House in January 81 when he became president. Frank, you've written a lovely book about your uh, father, who was a GI in the Second World War. Did your involvement in politics and um, uh, your adherence to the Republican Party come from family uh, background? Or tell us a little about that. Not so much. Not so much. It's uh, uh, I don't think family was particularly politically active, politically aware, and politically concerned. Uh, I know I know my dad was always a very sort of centrist Republican, uh, but I think he certainly shared the view I just articulated that uh, Carter was not up to the job. He probably had uh, more reservations about Reagan at that time as a a challenger, as not an incumbent. uh, Reagan was stigmatized by his opponents as being perhaps reactionary right wing or not up to the job uh, intellectually. uh, So he was easy to sort of denigrate. I don't think my father shared those concerns. He ended up voting for Reagan, but uh, but I think he was probably less enthusiastic about it than I was. Frank, when you were working uh, with uh, the Reagan administration, some historical events happened during that time, uh, namely the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union. Um, did you take part of those these, uh, negotiations? Were you um, active in those negotiations? Yeah, yeah. And, and to clarify, I think it's very fair to say Reagan helped set the stage for that, but that actually took place uh, after he left office in the Bush 41 administration, uh, but certainly was part of a continuum. And, you know, there are several elements there, Albert. One was to compete ideologically, to compete in the, all of this contested territory in the developing world where the Soviets made a claim that Western involvement was exploitative and unjust. And it, Reagan viewed that it was important for the democracies to stand up and to defend democracy intellectually and to hold out for the third world a prospect for a better life through market economics and democratic reforms. And that was, for example, particularly important in Africa and in Central America, where there were significant insurgencies underway. So one point was sort of a global uh, soft power offensive. Another point was the Reagan doctrine, which was to provide uh, arms, to provide support for anti-communist guerrillas. Again, that was in Afghanistan and in Central America. Uh, A third point was technology to uh, use uh, uh, strategic defense initiative, Star Wars, to try to render uh, Soviet strategic capabilities uh, ineffective or less effective. And a final point would be alliance collaboration to reach out to the NATO allies, to ANZAC, to other treaty allies, to reinforce, reinvigorate those uh, relationships. And and indeed, the Western alliance structure collectively was far more powerful than the Soviet alliance structure, the Warsaw Pact. But the Soviets had uh, the advantage of very strong internal cohesion that a authoritarian state could could uh, implement, whereas of course the uh, U.S. and its allies had to operate in these democratic structures, where you know it, it's it's it requires a lot of effort to try to maintain and harmonize the kind of positions you want. Frank, can I just dig a little deeper into those um, summits with Gorbachev and, and Reagan and, and your your role at Reykjavik? They often say that um, America through technology defeated the Soviet Union by spending them uh, out of existence. The, the Russians, in the end, couldn't compete. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about China because we're going to come to that, but um, isn't that a key difference between uh, the main opponent we face now and uh, what we did then? I, I think you're absolutely right, both in terms of economic performance, uh, Michael, and technology. The, the, the Soviets had, I think, very capable engineering capabilities but they didn't have a, a private sector that was dynamic and they didn't believe in technological innovation. So they, they put all of their tech into uh, defense industrial complex and didn't harness the broader societal elements of technology. So, so I, I think it was very difficult for them to compete over uh, the long run, whereas the U.S. and the West are just far more innovative, far more dynamic and Indeed, Gorbachev's, I was, to refer back to Albert's earlier question, I was in Reykjavik at the Gorbachev-Reagan summit there. Gorbachev's key request was that SDI 
the strategic defense initiatives be confined to the laboratory that are not, would not be brought into the field for test, which effectively kills the program. It was only by saying we're taking this into the field to test it that we're saying, by the way, we're, we're rendering your nuclear arsenal obsolete. So you no longer have the ability to threaten or bully the rest of the world with, with your nuclear missiles. And that was a real turning point for Gorbachev. The Reagan wouldn't give on on that request. And he was he had to try to come to terms then with his deficiencies in the Soviet system. Very good. And let me ask you also a question in regards to your interest uh, with Australia. I believe that in the mid-70s, you started subscribing to Australian magazines. And so what prompted that interest? And are you still interested about Australia? You know, I had uh, one of my assignments at the State Department, this is going back a few decades, this is probably 82-83, but I was a grant officer in Asia for uh, the U.S. Foreign Development Agency, the Agency for National Development, AID, and one of the projects we spent a lot of time on was the Pacific Island states, uh, trying to encourage civic society, trying to encourage NGOs. And as you know, these countries are different stages of development, have uh, uneven uh, government capabilities. Uh, some of them are making progress in you know, getting toward middle income status, but some of them are more rickety and have their own local problems as well. But what was interesting is in the middle of it. So, so for that matter, for, as far as that goes, it's sort of a normal development picture and something that, you know, countries like Australia and the United States and Canada and UK can come to terms with and try to promote development work. But in the middle of all of this, the Soviets showed up. The Soviets showed up and started funding and supporting domestic political groups in these small island states. I remember they offered to building projects and concessions and soft loans. They said, we're going to do geodetic surveys and doing harbor, harbor surveys, intelligence collecting. So the Soviets had a reasonably robust presence uh, that was of enormous concern to both Canberra and the United States about what in the world are they up to in these uh, smaller remote countries. And we know it's not up to anything good. Uh, so uh, Canberra got its game up a bit. We got our game up a bit and just improved our, our coverage there and worked with the normal local coalitions to help limit and push out uh, Soviet efforts. Uh, so that was that was my first connectivity, I think, functional connectivity with Australia and coordinating, collaborating with Australia. And I also know that you're a student of uh, uh, Chinese culture. You're fluent in Mandarin. Uh, so what prompted that interest? That came out of uh, undergraduate studies. I simply started taking that uh, a bit on a whim, I have to say. Um, I was a little bit bored with my studies. I wanted to explore what was the most challenging courses offered. I was told it was Chinese, so I just started taking Chinese. By the way, taking Chinese, we're back Albert in the 1970s. If you were taking Chinese in the 1970s, it was a bit like taking uh, Latin. Uh, meaning <laughs> you, were you were never, ever going to encounter anyone who spoke it. There would never, ever be any practical use for it. You would never... Uh, meet someone or converse with someone. You could never listen to Chinese radio. You couldn't get a Chinese newspaper. So there was absolutely zero application of this skill. It was really just sort of a labor of love. And it was almost by accident, I went to Taiwan for graduate work in 1980. And uh, to my delight and surprise, it was actually a Chinese speaking society where you could pick up a Chinese newspaper and go into a restaurant and use your Chinese and say hello to people on the street and buy a bus ticket and so forth. So it became a, a useful skill after a few years. But I think you're being very modest because you were Assistant Secretary of Commerce uh, uh, focused on Asia. That's obviously China. You're at the That's right. That's right. Well, that, but by, by, the 19, by the 1990s, then, there was an enormous amount of activity. And then you were uh, a former f uh, ambassador in the forward listening post in Singapore and uh, yeah, you've been in yeah. uh, working as a businessman in Shanghai and uh, well I, and I still I still work in Shanghai in business uh, no nowadays it's a it's a fantastic uh, strength if I may say so it's a great skill to have it opens up uh, a window into a different culture uh, I always remember this quote from Voltaire that he who possesses a second language possesses a second soul that you're, you have insight. It's not just a transactional medium, but you're looking at a different culture, a different civilization, a different history, and uh, you learn something every day. You learn something every time you, you, go, you visit China. Mm -hmm. 
So you've seen the evolution of China, obviously, from uh, the times of the 70s uh, um, when uh, they were starting to open. I think that was thanks to Richard Nixon. Kissinger went first, but Nixon went as well. This was 1970-71, but Kissinger did go first to work out the arrangements, and that began the modern era of U.S.-China relations. That's right. And so at that time, At that time, a, a, a status was provided to China, which was like a third world country status, mm -hmm. basically, uh, that could give them some economic benefits. And uh, I think they're still carrying on that status. Um, and in Australia, for instance, how is that translating? Uh, well, very simple. They can um, they can come and purchase and start any business that they want in Australia. Well, until recently, anyway. So, uh, in Australia, if we want to go to China to start a business, we can't. We have to have a Chinese partner. They have to have a majority, I believe, um, and uh, and so on. So it's a very difficult uh, to have any reciprocal arrangement with China. So that has given them an enormous advantage. Look, I think there are all sorts of problems and challenges in the our relationships with China today that stand for correction. However, I would say also if we go back over the five decades of interaction with China on balance, the engagement strategy was the right strategy. And the initial impetus for it, the, the, the Nixon-Kissinger impetus was a Cold War impetus to say these fellows have a series of complaints about the Soviet Union and we have to try to pull them away. And Kissinger's dictum was that it is important that the United States be closer to both Moscow and Beijing than either of those two nations are to each other. So we must always represent the shortest legs of the triangle. So we become the default collaborator. We, we are we are the uh, least unfavored uh, adversarial power, right? And the and the other power is more unfavored. So so that whatever China thinks of us, they have a lower opinion of the Soviet Union, mm. and whatever the Soviet Union thinks of us, they have a lower opinion of China. Thereby, mm. you preclude a Sino-Soviet. Uh, collaboration, which which was successful. So that was successful. Then the second phase under Deng Xiaoping was also successful because Deng Xiaoping had a sense of historical context and he had enormous uh, national stature. He was the last of the revolutionary generation, so he could transcend the bureaucracy and transcend the party. But he he knew that the imperative for China was economic transformation. He knew China was an impoverished country. And he also had a sense of international limits. He said there's no need for China to challenge the international system. What we need to focus on is economic growth. So he, he could bring his stature to bear to enforce those limits on international behavior. And, and unfortunately, since he's left the scene, no one with his stature has been in control, and it's all been, I mean, these are very capable people, but they all are people who come up through the party apparatus. So they're all uh, reflective of the party system rather than uh, people with independent statue can limit the party system. And so I, and so I think you have a, a party that has seen a protracted period of economic success translated to political military reach, and they are not shy at all about uh, trying to have their way without mm -hmm. working through an international system. So it's a considerable challenge for Australia and for the United States as well. Even in Australia, we were tremendously comfortable uh, until the last few years with uh, uh, trade with China, with um, free trade agreements with China, with uh, engagement, as you mentioned before. That was uh, the then doctrine. Uh, but um, we started to change uh, with... Um, Uh, putting a bar on Huawei, um, not proceeding with the extradition agreement uh, that uh, uh, the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang came here and was promised. Uh, they were tremendously uh, engaging days, but um, uh, uh, they've changed, not us. That's my they, they, feeling. They, it's, it's, I think it, that's. I think that's a fair comment. Also, I might add, you, you, you gentlemen know this better than I would. But there were a number of celebrated incidents of China overreaching in Australian society and, and local politics uh, and uh, university campuses and so forth. It was to say, you know, their ability to show restraint is just very, very limited. And they're 
their sort of preternatural desire to intervene uh, just tends to dominate, right? And I think it's very much to their detriment. I think if they'd shown restraint, uh, they'd be in a better position. And it's really, I mean, in terms of classical international relations theory, it's perplexing because IR theory tells us that the ascendant power has the advantage of time being on their side. So the ascendant power can afford to sort of hold back and not force issues, right? But it does require some discipline because all, all bureaucracies, all authoritative systems do like to force issues. Uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, mystifying to me about how China sort of went down this path, right? Well, With, uh, I mean, it's Australia, Vietnam, it's India, and uh, several incidents with the United States, but not, I think, as, as celebrated as what they've done vis-a-vis uh, -vis Australia. Wasn't the key point, though, actually in China itself when um, the reason we, we uh, uh, appreciated Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao was they self-limited themselves to two terms in power. And right. when, that, that when Xi crossed over the Rubicon and made himself... Um, dictator or leader or chairman, whatever expression you like to use for life, um, that gave him enormous sort of Stalin-esque power. And, and I um, uh, respect very much people like you and all of the uh, experts on China who I've got to know here in Australia, but I often go back and read um, Franz Borkenau's International Communism, which was published in 1939, because in a sense, uh, Xi is more more of a communist than he is a Chinese. Yeah, I think that's a very good observation, Michael. I think, uh, I, I, by the way, I think your premise is absolutely correct, that when you say I'm in for two terms, 10 years and out, uh, you're saying you're part of a process and you're a temporarily steward of a process. When you say, no, 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 I'm here forever, it's a very different statement. It has a very different meaning. And I think the entire system melds itself to your goals. Um, so it becomes more of a personality-led process. And uh, this was really uh, against the grain of several decades of Chinese history. And by the way, I would say the Soviet history, the Soviets were very proud that they went from a personality-led system to a bureaucratic system. And they said that gave them better outcomes and more stability. And actually, in some respects, it became, I wouldn't quite call it a conservative, but in some respects, it became at least a cautious system uh, less erratic, certainly. Um, so it's a bit of a surprise to see an authoritarian system go from a bureaucratic system to a personality-led system. So let me um, ask perhaps the two of you, because you are political veterans and uh, and you, you, you would uh, know the answer to this question. I mean, uh, we can pinpoint the moment where China triggered their wrath against Australia when uh, the pandemic started a couple of months after um, this pandemic, the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr. Scott Morrison, uh, demanded to have an investigation about uh, the coronavirus um, starting in Wuhan. How did it happen? And um, that's when the whole game started. But do you, knowing the Chinese, do you think that that is an impromptu reaction or was that planned for a long time and uh, that was um, the reaction of Mr. Morrison was just used as a trigger to start yeah, their new strategy? That's an interesting question. What I've, what I've seen in my dealings with China, so I give you a partial answer, is that Calibration of response is very, very difficult in that system because internal cohesion is the supreme value. So if somebody has an idea, we need to do X, it's very difficult for anyone in that system to say X might not really fit the moment or it might it, the cost of doing X might exceed the benefit, or why don't we all sleep on it for a few days, or why don't we start at 50% of X? The only thing you can really say if you're in the leadership in that system, and somebody says, I think when you actually, you need to say good idea, or you can say, let's double down on that. And so there's an amplification effect. What I say in, in China is the job interview in China lasts 50 years. Your, your, your being your entire service in the party, your entire service in that administrative state, uh, you're being evaluated for promotion. And there's only one question on the job interview, 
one question over 50 years, are you one of us? So the supreme value to the exclusion of other values practically is unit cohesion, all right? And if you say, you know what, I think we might be going down the wrong path, you've just failed the job interview, all right? So you, you have to applaud a decision, right? Even if you think it might be a bad decision. You know, the telling, the go back a few years before Australia's problems, what was stunning to me, if we go back five, seven years, was the Stakaku Diaoyutai disputes where significant budget and uh, pressures in Japan and demographic pressures in Japan to reduce defense spending. And there's even a, a, you know, a minority view, but a potent voice to reduce Japanese uh, U.S. military ties as sort of a vestige of World War II or colonial or whatever. There's always sort of a somebody arguing that, but it had some potency in the system. In the middle of that, China starts buzzing these islands that are under Japanese administration. There's immediately, Japan goes through the greatest defense buildup in the modern era, the post-World War II era. Japan, U.S. has to respond in kind as well. There's enormous uptick in U.S.-Japan defense consultation. You say, what in the world is China doing? If China, China had economic growth on its side, it had these demographic pressures in Japan on its side, it had budget pressures on its side, if it could just if we just bide its time for a bit, the odds are the U.S.-Japan defense relationship was sort of in a slow fade any event, but they just didn't have the ability to bide their time. I just, all I'd say, uh, Frank's got more experience with this, particularly from um, traveling in and out of, uh, of China and um, vast experience in, in the, the U.S. Uh, civil leadership. But here, um, I think there was a reaction to um, their over-involvement, Frank. Um, mm. the, the, there's a famous guy um, called Mr. Huang Jin Mo who uh, headed their um, United Front Department work here in Australia, mm. and he was just about to get citizenship. Um, oh. And he was the guy who uh, stood ne- next to poor Senator Sam Dastiari and got him to... Uh, say those words that uh, we shouldn't interfere in, in uh, China's uh, South China Sea policy. Can you explain what uh, Sa- who Sam Destiari is? And- he was a prominent senator from New South Wales Labor um, Senate, lo- right. who, who lost his job when he, uh, right. um, you know, it became clear that various bills of his had been paid and then he, he also uh, um, made some pro-Chinese uh, uh, press statements. But so... So that started, people started to resent the heavy-handed donations and political involvement, right. and then we we started to sort of gently respond. First of all, no Huawei, no extradition treaty, um, and then it's very interesting to see that both Liberal and Labor supported in the Senate, because you, you're, you know the Australian system, Frank, mm-hmm. in the Senate you need a majority and neither Liberal or Labor have got it, so we've got to work together on foreign policy. It's quite surprising that both with the extradition treaty, the foreign interference legislation and the foreign relations legislation, that everyone has voted together. So that's mm-hmm. how heavy-handed people perceived yeah. um, Beijing's activities here. Right. And, you know, it, it, again, back to the Japan analogy, it just struck me as all completely avoidable, completely self-inflicted wound on behalf of China, because they were going to uh, continue to uh, grow in trade capabilities and educational work and tourism. And so, you know, they had a lot of positive trends uh, on their side just by virtue of their economic weight. But so if they could simply be sort of a good neighbor and not push or force an issue, they would naturally uh, improve relations, right? But they they just lacked that uh, discipline. So now, of course, they're denying Australia all of uh, the positive uh, uh, side effects uh, uh, of uh, of uh, uh, their economy, and uh, they are only inflicting on us uh, only punishments. So right. Australia is being punished right now. What do you think the end game is? Well, it will. There's there's a lot of uh, continuity and inertia in the Chinese system. So I would not be surprised if this, what would you call it, Michael, rupture in relations or freeze in relations. I would not surprise if it lasts several years. 
before there might be a thaw. But I would say this, this tells me that Australia needs to think through its near abroad and its reach, meaning classical diplomacy is simply we have an embassy and we have a set of issues in this country and we're there, again, we're there to promote commerce and education and so forth. All of that remains true, but what what is Australia doing to enhance its reach and capabilities in that those countries, and what is it doing uh, regarding what China might be doing in those countries? So uh, that that those are just interesting questions, almost somewhat similar, perhaps, to the days of the Soviet Union, uh, where Australia now has security interest in the success and independence of the ASEAN nations and of the Pacific Island states. The, the the phrase is a good expression, Frank, because um, by not importing Australian coal, apparently various Chinese cities have been uh, uh, without power during, uh, I mean, that's really cutting off your nose to spite your face. That might be an Australian expression, but you know you know where I'm, I'm getting with that. And again, you know, their aggressiveness in the South China Sea is allowed, has right. prompted India to invite Australia to participate in these... Um, Malabar exercises, naval exercises, to, to make the Quad more active. Um, well, I think, never I think reinvigoration closer to Japan than we are now. I think reinvigoration of the Quad was sort of a natural outgrowth of behaviour. And I, I was talking to a friend uh, from the Australian government after the Chinese-Indian border fracas, uh, of which you probably know more than I know, but I said, I look, I don't know how to interpret this, but I would get the most senior intelligence person I can for signals intelligence and, and satellite intelligence. And I would send that person to Delhi for a briefing and to say, here's what our satellites tell us. Here's what Chinese units were involved. Here's their movements in the weeks beforehand. Here's their communications in the weeks beforehand. Here's where we think authority was given. Here's what kind of decisions they were looking at. This is what we see. And we're just sharing it with you, friend to friend. I said, I think that would do you more good in Delhi than any any other message of communication you could make, uh, right? Because it says we're all, we're all looking at the same picture and we're trying to understand what the heck is taking place here and what prompted the Chinese to force this issue at this time. To what extent was this ordained from Beijing, from PLA high command? To what extent was a local fellow feeling he couldn't back down to, uh, you know, so so help us understand what is going on here and then what is the appropriate policy response for Delhi. Albert, do you want us to ask Frank about um, the Biden administration and what might happen? Effectively, Frank, uh, there is a, a worrying scenario that I'd like to put to you. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Professor Boaz Ganor of the International Institute for Counterterrorism in uh, Herzliya, uh, Israel, uh, he has invented a, an indicator that is predictive of an imminent attack by uh, a terrorist group, but this equally can apply uh, to a country. Um, he says that when the uh, operational capabilities and the motivations of a group are very high, uh, that's predictive of an imminent attack. How would that translate um, for your neighbor, for instance, is that if you have a neighbor that absolutely loves you uh, and has a Kalashnikov in his garage, uh, you can rest assured that he's not going to use it against you. But if he does hate you and simply has a knife, you should be very worried. And in terms of our own neck of the wood here um, in uh, Australia, uh, we have a neighbor that is not too far away, that's China. They've got uh, military capabilities that are outside of this world, and they have a motivation that is proving to be uh, very harmful to us economically, and possibly um, uh, that could translate into uh, an imminent attack. And what I would like to ask you uh, is that given the uh, you know, asymmetrical means that uh, you have here, Australia, 24 million people, China, 1.6 billion, and so on. Um, what are our chances here? Uh, what would be uh, the Biden administration and America uh, response uh, if there was such an attack? Well, I think I'm glad for all sorts of reasons. I'm glad that the uh, U.S.-Australian Security Alliance remains intact. I would say I, I, uh, I would say one of the 
truisms of foreign policy is what do nations need? Well, they need friends. We live in a world that has uncertainty in it, that has challenges in it, and it's good to go through life with friends. Uh, and friendships can sometimes be uneven and sometimes have costs and sometimes be vexing, but you're better off in, I'd say, in your personal life having uh, good friends, and you're better off in your political military life having friends as well. So I would also adhere to George Schultz's admonition that don't take relations for granted. Relations always have to be cultivated and tended to, and it doesn't matter uh, how many times you tell your spouse you love her or him, you still need to tell that person every day. So you always need to treat your friends with respect. You always need to go listen to them and you always need to look for ways to improve that friendship. So I take comfort that I think the U.S.-Australian relationship is currently a very positive one, but but one core bit of advice I give to Biden, and I think Joe Biden knows this in his DNA, is that you have to find uh, all the mechanisms you can to collaborate with allies and like-minded nations. So this is, I think this is part of his worldview. Hmm. It worries us in Australia that America is a bit divided and distracted. And and while with their, the initial rhetoric of the Biden administration and senior appointments seem good, um, yeah. you just wonder whether, um, well, I, I get all these emails from admittedly people in New York who are a bit out of touch, um, uh, you know, focused on writing a play about the terrible besieging of the capital. And I think to myself, what has to happen with China? Do they have to land on the west coast of the United States before people wake up, move on? Yeah. Um, and I, I hope the Biden administration is up to it. I, I'm, I'm not f- particularly uh, keen on Secretary Kerry uh, as the new climate czar, and I'm afraid that the left of the Democratic Party will use him as a sort of battering ram to, to mm. put climate over strategic issues. Yeah. Well, what's the the story about the New Republic uh, treating anyone that uh, uh, is a a little bit realistic about the Chinese situation as a Chinese hawk? And apparently uh, the promise of China that they're going to curb their carbon emission is more important than any of the geopolitical situation that is currently at play. I I would be surprised if that view uh, carries the day. I wouldn't be surprised if China seeks to exploit that sentiment. I wouldn't be so I wouldn't be surprised if you hear about it. Um, and and I, I I would even be surprised, I have to say, I don't know John Kerry terribly well, met him a few times, but I'd even be surprised if he actually subscribed to the view that we need to, US needs to sort of curtail its geopolitical initiatives vis-a-vis China or in East Asia, because otherwise China won't go along on climate initiatives, I'd be, I'd be quite surprised if he subscribed to that. That strikes me as a very naive view. Either either you accept that uh, these climate initiatives are important for the future of the world, or you don't. Um, and the point is, if China engages with these climate initiatives only because they think they're doing the U.S. a favor, then we're unlikely to be satisfied with their activities anyhow. They have to honestly believe that uh, there's systemic problems with coal-fired energy and that has to be phased out. We have to look at alternative energies. And, you know, and, and look, some of their rhetoric, I think, is pretty encouraging. And the question frequently in China is, do the actions match the rhetoric? Is it too simple, Frank, to say that uh, the Obama administration uh, traded off uh, a climate pre- pledge from Beijing at the Paris um, summit to for... Um, uh, turning a blind eye or inactivity in the South China Sea, and that's how come it's become a militarized. Uh, uh, well, I, I think we can fault Obama just more broadly for saying Obama's view of foreign policy was that it was exclusively a sunny day phenomenon. There was, no <laughs> such, there was no such thing as foreign policy problems or issues or malevolent powers, that every single problem the US faced was either a problem of its own making. Or, or some kind of miscommunication, you know, what Krauthammer called the broken telephone theory of foreign, of international relations, that the only reason Putin acts in a predatory fashion is because of some bad communication. So, I mean, that very first meeting between Hillary, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov was the reset button meeting, where the premise is the reason we have these disagreements and these problems is 
I mean, if somebody just said something, it was just a misstatement and ill will, and we're just going to we're going to reset things, right? So, I mean, what you're you're empowering your adversary if that's your approach. So, uh, so I think what we saw in uh, the Obama administration was enormous amount of goodwill, enormous amount of charm, um, and, and and a lot of soft power, but almost almost a denial that hard power ever mattered and should ever be respected or that there was such a such a, a an element of foreign policy as adversarial relations adversarial power so i think biden starts in a more uh, sophisticated or i may say more realistic position than obama was in the, the us has got the theodore roosevelt uh, uh, carrier group um, in the taiwan straits at the moment and the um uh, the Tom Tugendhat, who's uh, been interviewed as a predecessor to yours on this Frank talk, told us the British are even sending the Queen Elizabeth uh, with Australian and New Zealand and Canadian uh, escort ships uh, out that way in the new year. Um, but but um, uh, China has uh, cracked down on the, the Uyghurs. They even mm-hmm. boast about sterilising Uyghur yeah. women, um, their embassy yeah. in Washington. Uh, they... Uh, clearly have a plan to totally flatten Hong Kong. Um, should we worry about them testing uh, the Biden well, administration over Taiwan, uh, over Taiwan? Yeah, this is a little bit, uh, I think a lot of this keys off of your point of a few minutes ago, Michael, about Xi Jinping sort of establishing a lifelong role in office, because what we had seen gradually but materially over several decades in China was some space for civic society, that people's ability to live life on their terms continue to improve so that in in many aspects of society, other than politics, people could, you you know, there's space for NGOs and they might be, they might be sort of primitive by our standards, but it might just be a sports association or religious freedom or a book club or a private museum, but there was space for you to organize your life you saw home church but there's been retrogression is in the last few years there's been retrogression on on these points and more direct management of the communist party and institutions and society so uh which is which is unfortunate i think i think you had a more stable system when you allow people in society to operate as they choose you end up with greater stability you sort of have market behavior at the individual level right so so I, I I I view that as a step backwards, but uh, but that's where we are with China nowadays. And uh, Frank, there are also uh, areas uh, where the Chinese participate, and uh, I mean it may be uh, something that uh, uh, politicians maybe overlook this, but uh, China is the biggest producer of fentanyl, and they export that to the underworld, all around the world, in particular to the Mexicans. And uh, all the drugs in the streets in the United States now contain that. And so they know very well that by doing so, they're poisoning your population. I, mean, I think you've got 50 or 60,000 deaths a year uh, right. of people in the United States using fentanyl, all coming from China. Uh, right. So, so th- this is a parallel war that has started. Yeah, well... Look, I think there's enormous concern on the point you just raised, Albert. I'm not sure what the U.S. government response is on this. And I have to say, I think some of the U.S. government response over the last four years, the Trump administration was so oriented towards sort of friction rather than strategy that I think it dissipated what might have been some of the effect of the messaging. But it seemed just designed to engender ill will or to stigmatize China or to denigrate China. You said, well, but but what's the purpose of this? This should be friction should be a means to an end, not an end in itself. And if you're just simply injecting friction in a relationship, you're you're unlikely to induce a kind of response you want to see from China. So unfortunately, I think some of that effort was dissipated, tactically uh, just misplaced by the United States. So I'd be interested to see if Biden can sort of develop a coherent approach to China and focus on a few core issues that are the most important to the United States and focus all of the efforts on those those matters, right? Then we've, if you can do that, you can sometimes get a response from China. So Fra- Frank, Frank I'm, I'm, I'm a little... Sorry, Albert. Go, go ahead, go ahead, Michael. Frank, I'm a little more optimistic than uh, uh, than Albert about um, 
uh, Australia's reactions to, to China. First of all, I've been really surprised at the internal cohesion between left and right, between usually um, uh, cynical media um, reacting to foreign donations. It was broken open by uh, our left-wing ABC network, um, uh, that that story about foreign relations, fantastic uh, a story that led to the exposure of basically of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Wang Jinmo. But where where is all of this going to end? Where where we've managed to pass all this these laws, push back uh, quite a bit. Um, our balance of trade is actually prospering. Um, the iron ore price is very high, so uh, the government is earning a lot of taxes from. Right. Uh, Selling uh, it to, to, to China, uh, but uh, it is pushback um, and alliance solidarity the way to go. I think that's one important building block, and I'd also say let's look at third countries. Let's let's uh, let's develop an understanding of who in the Australian embassies in ASEAN, for example, is tasked with monitoring Chinese behavior and activity in those countries and what kind of reporting mechanisms are there, what kind of NGOs in those countries would be interested in collaborating and what's going on, what's going on in the Pacific Island states. I mean, those are, those remain developing nations that have, you know, some fragility to them and, and can be exploited in the right way by hostile powers. And so what kind of reach, but Australia has good reach in those, those territories for the most part. And uh, how, how is that? ebbing and flowing. So I think some kind of reporting mechanism on activities in the near abroad would be a useful addition to current set of activities. Can you still do business in China? Are you, are you not too afraid, afraid to go to Hong Kong? I'll, or Shanghai? I'll, I'll give you some news that might shock you. I'm, I'm in the consumer goods segment of the market. China is a fabulous place to do business. China is, and China has an enormous appetite for Australian goods. Uh, Australian produce, agricultural products, Australian uh, consumer goods, uh, nutrition, mommy and baby gear, beach products. But there's all sorts of things that Australia manufactures in Australia that have that Chinese consumers love. So Australian goods uh, tend to do very well in the Chinese market. American goods as well. These great global brands or these champion brands in your home market uh, are respected by the Chinese consumer. Yeah, well, where is this going to end? There is no doubt, Michael, that uh, uh, the Chinese consumer, the Chinese people have uh, an admiration for Australia. And I think we should disconnect uh, the people with the, the, the communist regime. It's the same with Iran. We disconnect uh, the Ayatollahs from the, from the people of Iran. There's uh, two, two different distinct... But, but, but I would say this. I would say this, that you want to try to find common ground for collaboration where you can. You don't... You really want to try to avoid uh, completely interacting with another power only in negative terms. So I would say to Australia, in general, Australia should welcome Chinese students and welcome Chinese tourists. Yeah. And look for ways to trade, uh, trade, uh, you know, consumer goods particularly. So there's there's all sorts of areas where the two nations can collaborate, even as Australia should draw a line under interference in domestic activity or other kind of hostile acts or arbitrarily uh, boycotting Australian goods because of political differences and so forth. So those are those are hostile acts that shouldn't be countenanced. So, but I think you want to. You know, you want to be ambidextrous, right, and find areas to to try to work together. And and what this is what troubled me about some of the Chinese relationships under Trump. It wasn't all of the issues that Trump raised. I think were legitimate issues, but I think the more you want to raise criticism or raise legitimate complaints, you also try to have some good news in the picture as well, right? Because you're not trying to tell Beijing, well, you are enemy. And and we cannot find any way to work with you. You want to say we have our our national interests. We have what's important to us. That's right. And we will defend what's important to us. Uh, but but beyond that, there should be areas where we can collaborate. Good. And Frank, I'm respectful of your time because it was my mistake. I miscalculated the time difference between Melbourne and Los Angeles. I know you need to go. So it's uh, this Frank talk is a bit uh, shorter than usual. Uh, but let me ask you the last question. 
Can you advise on three of your favorite books that you can recommend to our viewers and listeners? You know, Michael knows I'm quite a uh, bibliophile. And I, did, I just finished my, uh, my list of uh, 2020 uh, books, uh, sort of tallied it up. It was just over 50 books, about one book a week. And I, 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 I had some that I really enjoyed uh, that I command, and I don't think there's any surprises here, but I never read, uh, I never read Robert Graves' I, Claudius, and Claudius the God. So oh, I never okay. read new historical, and fantastic fiction, but I'd say, I'd say his third novel, it's not quite a trilogy because the third novel takes place several hundred years later, but uh, in, the, in the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, Count Belisarius was the best of the three historical fictions. It was a, and I think that's because most, most of us have some grounding in Roman history and we understand something of the Roman empires. And I, at least for myself, I had much less of a grounding in the Byzantine empire. So to read that uh, historical fiction, Count Belisarius uh, by Robert Graves was a fabulous book. So I would commend that. I also had the chance to read a book that every a high school or college student in the world was read, except for me, but it was Don Quixote. And I really enjoyed Don Quixote. I, I had to read it, I have to say, with a study guide, but I really, it, it really brings a smile to your face. And a lot of the themes we see in literature today or on television today are inspired by episodes of uh, Sancho Panza and Don Quixote and fantasy and, uh, uh, you know, phil uh, philosophical uh, politics that he held to. So I enjoyed that. And the third... The third books that I finished off last year was, were the Barchester novels by Trollope, but I read all six of them. They were a lot of fun. It was really remarkable for me to see that uh, Britain in the 1850s, so to speak, is not radically different from America in this decade, and I suspect Australia this decade as well, but the same kind of motivations and impetus and, and uh, dynamics in society uh, still churn away for us today as they did in Britain 150 years ago. So I would recommend those as fun reads for people. Thank you, Frank. Michael, do you want to ask something, your last question to Frank? Well, just uh, th thank him very much. It's great catching up with you uh, in, in Los Angeles. Um, uh, I'm going to get uh, Count Balasaurus because I've really enjoyed those, Robert, uh, grave earlier novels that you uh, talked about. So yeah. uh, the Byzantine Empire I'll be going into. And um, I I'm just reading, um, to conclude, Vasily Grossman's just translated oh, novel. It's not a historical book, Stalingrad. And it's uh, when you get past all the Russian names, which sometimes are confusing, it's a, uh, it's a great read. It's that, that some people describe it as the um, post-Second World War, uh, War and Peace. Yeah. Yeah, The Economist loved Vasily Grossman's book. So they, thank you. Thank you for spurring my interest in that. Good. And Frank, well, uh, best regards from Michael Eason, who introduced us. He said, Well, Michael's a dear old friend, as is Michael Danby. And uh, Albert, I'm delighted to make your acquaintance here directly as well. Same here. Support. And I hope to see you at the dialogue uh, in person I would love, at the I end would love of to this year. The dialogue uh, again this year when we're allowed to travel again. I'd love to visit. <laughs> Australia again. So gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on.